Hey, thank you for joining us for our very first episode of Sozo Talks. It's our podcast that'll have stories, conversations, ideas to encourage you, equip you, challenge you. I'm, I'm really excited to be sitting with Steve Smothers, Sozo's lead teacher and one of my really good friends, a senior leader here in our church family and uh, a real comrade in, in our journey. Steve, tell us a little bit about this book that you've been working on. Well, it's called Seeing Through a Better Lens, and hopefully we'll be out sometime in the next month. Awesome. Yeah. So what what was the inspiration for Seeing Through a Better Lens? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that probably about 10 months ago. I was actually at your house, and uh, we had invited Chuck and Shane to come in and prophesy over the group and kind of minister to the group. And, And when they got to me... Uh, one of the guys said, you have books in you. I remember that. You remember that? And I, and, and that, I said, yeah. you know, I'm thinking, books, you know, that's plural. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't even have one book in me. And uh, the other one said, you know, you have grace to write. Mm. And the grace that you have is going to open up something for everyone in this core team, or there'll be some in this core team that will write books as well. And... Uh, you know, it was one of those deals. I remember driving home and, and thinking about it, and, and there was something in it. It just it resonated with me. I, I just knew it was a, a today word. And so it was around a little bit before Thanksgiving. And so um, during, I remember all during the Thanksgiving holidays, I just began to write. I just had a real grace to write, and I just started writing. And uh, by December, uh, everything is pretty dead around here in December. All the students go home, and so I just spent all of December just writing. And so by the end of the spring, I'd pretty much written a book. And so um, my editor called me. I, I had an gr- editor reading it. And she called and she said, hey, do you know how long your book is? And I said, no, I have, I have no idea. I've never written a book before. I didn't have any idea. And she said, 376 pages. Oh, wow. And I thought, that's quite the book. Man, that, that's that's like, you know, some magnum opus or something, you know. And so I, I thought about it. I thought, you know, that really is a lot longer than I would read. Yep. And most people are not going to read a book that long. And so what I realized was I, I really had three books in one. And so I guess the prophetic word of Shane and, and uh, Chuck was right. You know, there were books in that. And so now almost, it's been about 10 months or so, Um we're getting close to giving birth to this thing, so hopefully next month we'll we'll have it out. Man, that's incredible. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you know, really, the impetus. You said, you know, how did it come about? Yeah. I think the way it came about, really, though, uh, was those days early four years ago when we were just starting Sozo, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember. I mean, some of the greatest times I ever had were out on my back porch, and it'd be you and and me and and. Dustin West and, and your brother, and, you know, we just dream. Yep. You know, what What does this need to look like? And I think probably from a lot of those talks and conversations and whatever, that was really the, the seed for, for the book. So I'd say really it came uh, back then, and then it was really field-tested through a lot of the things that we did in Sozo Life and, and things like that. So That's awesome. It's cool to see how that, like, seed— Take some time to germinate, and then all of a sudden, yeah. ten months and and books. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty exciting. So uh, unpack the title, seeing through better lens. Yeah, 
You know, I, I think probably all of us have a lens that we're given in our life. You know, maybe it's from our parents, maybe it's church, maybe it's, you know, culture, whatever. Uh, ways that we see God, mm-hmm. ways that we perceive ourselves and other people, and, and even ways that we read the Bible. And so uh, a better covenant lens is really the theme of this. And so it really kind of unpacks just how vast uh, and how imaginative the kingdom of God really is. And so this better covenant lens is kind of the theme of the whole book. Cool, cool. So what do you mean by better covenant lens? I know what you mean, but people just just tuning in to us may not not know what that, that phrase means. Yeah, another phrase we use is living from the right side of the cross. And and it's the idea that what happened at the cross really changed everything. What happened in Jesus' resurrection and, and ascension and enthronement and pouring out of his spirit, it, it really changed everything. And so the better covenant is, is a phrase that the writer of Hebrews uses mm-hmm. in, in reference to the new covenant, what Jesus did uh, at the cross and his resurrection. And so it's it's really a life of grace and how that's lived out. And so that's really what the book book is about. Cool, cool. I like that. So uh, you, you start off, first chapter is called uh, Repentance is a Good Word. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's you. It wasn't a very good word to me growing up. Yeah. <laughs> I was scared of it. Yeah, I didn't Usually like hellfire, brimstone, yeah, yeah, screaming, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, same here. And, and so... But, but I began to understand what repentance really means. And, you know, Jesus used that word a lot. Mm-hmm. He talked about, you know, if you, if you don't repent, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. And so when I began to realize that repentance uh, is, is a Greek word, metanoia, that means to change your way of thinking. It's not just changing your thinking. It's changing the way you think to begin to align with God's way of thinking, God's mind. And so... What I realized was, you know, that's really a great thing to be able to repent, to change, and and to align with God's way. And I think most of us find ourselves um, doing things that we're just, like I say, the lens was handed to us, and we just do it because that's what we were taught to do or that's what was modeled before us. And uh, in that first chapter, I talk a little bit about my life, my experience and growing up and what that was like. And and uh, some of the things that kind of shifted my way of thinking. Yeah, what, what would some of those things be? You know, uh, one of them, I think one of the most impactful things for me uh, was when I was about 27 years old, uh, I have a good friend of mine invited me to come to a, um, a kind of a New Year's conference. It started on New Year's Eve, and so my wife and I, and my, at that point, had three little boys, and we loaded up and we went to um, Houston, Texas, and uh, my friend said, "Now you're going to really love this." And you know, I, at that point in time, I was uh, a youth pastor in a Baptist church, and uh, was kind of moonlighting at, at various uh, charismatic events and stuff like that. And and so I, I was in for it. I was hungry for God. And so I go to this deal, and he says, "These guys are prophetic psalmists." All right. That's and, a pretty good title. Yeah, and I'm like, man, what what is a prophetic psalmist, you know? And so um, when I got there, you know, it was it was it was I'm you know I'm <laughs> I have a red tie and a black suit. And I stick out like a sore thumb in this meeting, you know. And uh, you know, I'm going to church, and so uh, the guy gets up and and he's really pretty normal, mm-hmm. you know. 
And they're, they're doing these worship songs that most of them they had written and the guy's playing on the piano, he and his wife. And then they do something kind of odd. They, they stop and uh, read from this book that he's written called Letters from the Father. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he'll read a particular prophetic word. He'll say, if that speaks to you, stand up. And uh, I mean, virtually every word was speaking to me. And then he just started picking people out and just kind of reading their mail. And, um, and I mean, some of the things he, were, he, he was saying to me was just like, you know, I, I'm not a real emotional person, but I, I began to just, just, just weep, you know, because they were, it was so uh, true to what was going on. And, and one of the things is, he says, you know, the Father really is releasing you from religious constraints so that you can be a daring deliverer of those who will find his incredible, marvelous grace or something wow, like that. And, uh, and so, yeah, so that was, that was kind of my first step into a better lens to say, yeah, I, I think it really is, the good news is better than I ever knew. Well, that's really good. Yeah. That's really good. Um, so the, the next chapter is the Jesus lens. Yeah. Help, help me understand what, what does the Jesus lens mean? What is it, how, how does that maybe change the way we see? Oh, I, you know, I think that's huge because uh, I had a good friend or a friend uh, named Wayne Jacobson who, who first started using that language. And whenever he, he would talk about the Jesus lens, I'd wonder, what, what do you mean by that? And, and um, as I, I began, I was reading through Luke 24, mm-hmm. kind of the story, you know, of the um, Emmaus Road experience. You've got a guy named Cleopas, great, great name if you're looking for children, <laughs> name for your kids. I know you got a, Cleo. got a son here, Cleo. There Could we be go. a good name coming up. Um, Cleopas and another one. And so they have this encounter with Jesus. You, you remember the story? And and Jesus basically, uh, they have no idea who Jesus is, but he begins to tell them about all the things that uh, in the uh, Old Testament, the writings of the prophets and the writings of Moses. And he says, uh, as he unpacked it, he said, all of these things are revelation of who I am. Mm-hmm. And so um, their eyes are open, their hearts burn within them, and they're transformed. These guys go back from... Um, Emmaus all the way back to Jerusalem, and they're they're changed. They're radically wrecked. Another another place, Jesus is talking to the the uh, religious leaders, the the Jewish leaders, and he tells them, you know, you guys, you you diligently search the scriptures because in them you think that you find eternal life. He said, but what you don't really realize is they are what testify about me. I am eternal life, but you refuse to come to me, and so. As I began to see that, I began to see all through the scripture how Jesus really um, gives us a, a true lens to understand the Old Testament and to understand the New Testament, but, to, but particularly to understand who God is. Because the scripture talks about how he is uh, a full representation of who God is. He's the truest representation of who God is. Wow, that's really good. So one of the things you say, I think in that chapter, is that uh, Jesus is the foundation of our faith and not the Bible. Yeah. Which probably changes the way that, that, that's probably a hard one to swallow for some people, and it probably changes the way we just understand Christianity as we know it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it almost sounds radical to say that. Yeah, it it feels right on the edge. Yeah, yeah. You know, I grew up in a a church, very conservative, and, um, you know, I remember my grandpa 
uh, when I was just a kid, you know, um, I, I walked in, he was studying the Bible, it was like five in the morning, and, and I happened to stumble in into his deal. And I, I'll never forget, he, he pulled out his, he was reading his Bible, and I'm just watching him read his Bible, just an old rancher, you know, and, and uh, only went through like the seventh grade, but he's just loved the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so he, he just instilled that love for the Bible in him. And I remember him holding up. He said, this, this book right here is truth. And if you follow it, it's all you need in life. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, wow, that's great. And so I, it really did give me a good foundation of love for the Bible. But I, I began to realize that as I got a little bit older, that there was more to it than just the Bible because the Bible was the menu. Jesus is the meal. That's good. And so to really uh, come to the foundation that Jesus and his resurrection really is the most important thing. You know, we, uh, in, in the book, I talk a little bit about uh, some of the new atheists mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, H Hitchens and, and Harris and, and uh, Dawkins and those guys. And, and they're just kind of taking the, particularly the college campus by storm, you know, and, and the, the, their whole argument is that uh, if you can destroy the credibility of the Bible, then you can take down Christianity. And so uh, it really caused me to think, you know, uh, if, if our foundation is a book, if our defense is over a book, then there's something wrong with that because the book is what reveals who Jesus is. That's good. And it's not the other way around. Uh, Jesus in the New Testament actually was the one who necessitated the book. In the early church, it was all about his, the risen Lord, Jesus. And, and so the writers of the New Testament would have written about that event. And so it preceded everything that we have in Scripture today. And so while I love the Bible and, and I, um, I read it constantly, I mean, it's, it really is my source that I go to whenever I teach and whatnot, uh, I realize that it really is uh, the menu that that refers to the meal, who it's Jesus. So what I get from that is is really that in the first few centuries, the book was the, was the evidence of the Jesus event in yeah. a lot of ways. And so then sometimes we, re we reverse that order and, and make uh, the Bible central instead of Jesus central. Just share a little bit about just maybe how that happens and... and just how, how valuable it is to get that order right. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of times, um, you know, pe people just don't really think, they, they think current, whatever's been, again, whatever's been handed to them. You know, I grew up in a denomination where uh, in our creeds and whatever, uh, the very first thing was defending the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it can become very easy to believe that the, while the Bible is authoritative, it is inspired, that it is the most thing. And so if you put your faith in that Bible, then really that's the main thing. And that is, and then you, you can, you're quickly into the deal of, of this is the only way that we can communicate with God, the only way we can connect with God. And so it becomes all about memorizing this book. It becomes all about uh, the book itself. And so you lose sight of the God of the book. And so I think... Um, you know, that, that's something that can happen over time whenever people lose a genuine relationship, an encounter with, with Jesus, an encounter with God, an encounter with the Holy Spirit, then they can begin to, to rest on a book and the orthodoxy of that book and their group of people that gather around the book. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really good. Probably 
uh, if anybody's listening, I'm not sure that they are, but if they are, probably getting under a few people's skin kind of with that thinking. Yeah. Um, and, and so you're not actually devaluing the Bible is what because no. I, I know I know you have a high value for the Bible, but you're maybe putting Jesus in his rightful place, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, Jesus is Lord. Not, not the, the Bible's not Lord. The Bible is what reveals Jesus. And so the unveiling of Jesus is, is a major, major theme in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. And the book talks about that, that a lot of times uh, we, we don't have a true picture of who God really is. We don't understand the goodness of God. Yeah. And uh, in fact, we devote a whole chapter to that, I guess right after the uh, Jesus lens, is, is the goodness of God. Yeah, it kind of seems to be the heart of the book, is unveiling the goodness of God yeah. in, in a lot of ways. Because I, th- I think if you miss that, you've, you've missed it all. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it really is about good news. It is about this revelation of a God who really, really loves us and has pursued us from day one. Yeah. And I think that there's a real distortion, even in the, uh, the, the, the story of Genesis of how uh, it's almost as if God has turned his back on mankind and man's sinfulness is of such that God cannot look at him. But, but that's really not the story. God has always pursued man, yeah. but because of, of our sin, we have, have a distorted view of who, who God is, and we've turned our back on him. We've run from him, and our shame has really uh, caused us to hide. Our, our fear uh, has really caused us to be paralyzed, and, and guilt causes us to blame. And, and so I, I think if you don't get the goodness of God right from the very beginning of the story all the way through, I think the narrative kind of gets yeah. gets off. Yeah, yeah. So well, when I think you talk about the goodness of God, one of the, the difficulties, obviously, is the Old Testament mm-hmm. um, because I, I think people think, okay, how does, is it good cop, bad cop? How, how do those things uh, work together? And one of the things that, that I know you, you talk about is uh, the difficulty when we read the Bible like a, as a flat book, right? A flat reading of the Bible, and so everything has equal weight. Um, but, but you're proposing something very different. Yeah, I think there are a couple, a couple of terms that I'll use that, that can be helpful. Um, you know, whenever I, when I grew up, I, w- I was taught basically that flat reading, that every verse in the Bible has equal weight to it, okay. if you will. And so I would read stuff like, for instance, in uh, uh, Deuteronomy 21, where it talks about when you go to war. I mean, start. I mean, th- this one chapter is probably about as repulsive as you can get in our culture. It says, so when you go to war and you slaughter your enemy and you see a beautiful woman whose husband you've just slaughtered and you want to take her for yourself, you have her purify herself, she shaves, she shaves her eyebrows, and she cleans herself up for you, and uh, you let her have time to say her goodbyes to her family, the ones that you didn't slaughter, and then you take her for your own, you, you have sexual relations with her, she becomes your wife, and, but if you don't really like her, then uh, you, you can put her away, but you can't send her into the slave market uh, because that would really be bad. And so, you know, that's, that's like, you know, Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14. 
And does, so, it doesn't so, seem to hold up very well to for God to love the world. Yeah, it, it really is a very different thing. So you look at it and you think, okay, now wait, how does how does that work? Yeah, God so loved the world. God yeah. demonstrates His love. You know, and you're thinking, okay, I, that just doesn't seem like that works. But if you if you go back, and I, and I say this all the time, history is really our friend. Yeah. If you understand what's going on in real time, then uh, it, it begins to make sense. I mean, we're talking about 1,400 years before Jesus. Mm-hmm. We're talking about in the time of Moses. We're talking about a people who had just come out of slavery of 400 years plus. And you're talking about a people who are just extremely barbaric. You're talking about nations all around them who basically treat women as property. And so in that context, what Moses is saying there is really a click forward. It really is an upgrade because you're treating women with dignity in that culture. You're saying they really, they have dignity. They're, They're persons. They're not property. They're not like cattle or whatever. And so... It would have been incredibly radical in that day. Somebody hearing that would have gone, wow, that really is progressive for the day. Mm-hmm. But whenever you fast forward, you know, uh, to today in 2019, it just sounds incredibly barbaric. Yeah. And so you begin to say, how could God do that? Well, if you read it in a flat rendering, then the words of Deuteronomy 21 have the same weight as the words of Jesus, the same weight as the words of Paul and the Holy Spirit. As you start reading that, you think, well, there's something else has got to be going on here. And so the two words that I think really help sort that out is, uh, the first one is divine accommodation. Okay. And And that essentially means that God meets us where we are. Now, I don't know where you were whenever you encountered God for the first time, but most of us are not uh, at a place that, you know, we, we were not choir boys or anything like that. God meets us wherever yeah. we are. I mean, if we're, if we're uh, immersed in religion, if we're in rebellion, wherever we're at, God meets us. And so he stoops to us. That's called grace. He meets us at that place of our need, not where he wants us to be, but where we're at. And then he begins to lead us to the place where he wants us to be. And so you see that story all through the scripture. That's, that's why the narrative is so important. The second word is progressive revelation. Mm-hmm. And so God, in the same way as a good father accommodates the needs of their kids. I mean, you've got uh, two, almost three little kids. Yeah. And so the way you relate to your eldest daughter, who just got baptized, yeah. congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Uh, is very different than your two-year-old, yeah. right? And your son on the way will be, an, a, you know, just an infant, will be very, very different. So God accommodates in the same way that we accommodate our children until they come to a place. But, but you're not raising infants. Right. You're, you're raising daughters for the kingdom. Yeah. And so you will continue to reveal to them more and more stuff as they can handle it. And so the revelation, you know, a lot of times we don't see the big epic story, the grand story from Genesis to where we're at today. Uh, And so we try to just pluck out one thing and give it the same value, like you said, a flat rendering, instead of just saying, no, wait, God is increasing revelation, increasing, increasing. And so today we live in an incredible time Mm -hmm. when the kingdom of God has been revealed 
when the Spirit of God lives not only among us, but in us and through us. And so the revelation of uh, a time when the Holy Spirit would come and meet people and visit them and then depart, we don't live in that time today. Yeah. Today, He is available to all. So progressive revelation basically says uh, you and I have a greater picture of God than maybe Abraham did because he didn't have the, f- the full revelation of God. Wow, um, you're getting really radical now, Joe. <laughs> right? But that's so, it, yeah. So uh, essentially, God as revealed in Jesus through, through Scripture and now to us through the Holy Spirit, we're seeing him in a different way. Uh, yeah, maybe a, f- than- a fuller way, a, a full-orbed way. And, we, and the truth is, we actually get to participate in that union. We are invited in to that union with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, you know, I talk about that a little bit, about that relationship. I love that part, yeah. That, uh, you know, like a Greek word, the early, the early church, um, you know, by the time they got to the fourth century, they, they were looking for language to kind of sort out what was going on theologically. And one of the words that they came up with was the word, the Greek word, perichoresis. Mm-hmm. And so um, a choresis or choresis is the word we get choreography from. Okay. And so that means to dance, right? Yeah. Peri is around, to, the, uh, to dance around, okay? And so it's, it's this idea of this divine dance between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this oneness, this union, this inner relationship that's going on between them. And so the Holy Spirit, when he comes to live in us, we are invited into that very union of Father, uh, the Son, in, through the Father, in the Holy Spirit. And I mean, it's, it's an incredible invitation that we get. We're invited into what Jesus has provided for us. We're invited into his life. You know, I, I grew up in, in the language would have been, invite Jesus into your heart. Well, the truth is he's inviting us to enter into his life, to embrace his love and what he's already accomplished for us it's not anything that I have to do so much as to recognize what he's already done for me and enter into that perichoresis. So pretty, pretty exciting deal, actually. That's really good. Talk about living on the right side of the cross. That's kind of toward, towards the end of, of the yeah. book, but a really big concept I know for you. Uh, yeah. Just talk about what that concept means. Yeah, you know, you know, I think really kind of an impetus for the book was uh, teaching back in probably 2017, that I did on living from the right side of the cross. And I had so many people ask about that, and we incorporated it in some of our uh, equipping and whatnot. And, um, but w- what I realized was that uh, so many of us live kind of a confused, um, a, a confused life between the Old and the New Testament. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so we kind of blend the stuff all together. We take a little from the old, a little from the new. Yeah, we're saved by grace through faith, but yet we still need to keep these commandments or we do this. Or, and, and I began to look at that and I began to think, you know, the fruit of the old covenant is very different than the fruit of the new covenant. Yeah. And so you've got in, in the old covenant, your motivation is very different. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, I love what Second um, Corinthians 5 says. It says, you know, there was a time where we looked at Jesus after the flesh. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we saw the, the bearded, sandaled one who walked through Judea making disciples, and that was our view of him. He says, but no longer do we do that. And then he, the next verse he says, uh, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, all has become brand new. He's saying, look, you, you in, on the right side of the cross, mm-hmm. you have an invitation to emanate the one who lives in you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. If any man be in Christ. So it's, it's that in Christ, Christ in you kind of dynamic. You know, one is this in, invitation to a new identity. The other one is an authority of him living through you. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very different because in the old covenant, it was really a picture of imitation. Okay, I, yeah. I, I see Jesus. I want to live like him. Uh, I, I see these commandments. I want to keep them. And it's very radically different where uh, in the New Testament, the message that uh, is presented is one of oneness. It's one of abiding. It's one of living in Christ and him living through you. So it's more an invi- it's, it's more of an imitation versus an emanation right. where he emanates from you. An- another thing we talk about in that chapter is just the focus. In, in the old covenant, and, and I grew up, uh, honestly, when I first professed Jesus as my Lord and Savior, it was through an old covenant lens of sin-focusedness, mm-hmm. you know? And so... Um, you know, uh, our great Western theologian, Augustine, handed us that lens of, of uh, sin focus and sin consciousness. And so, you know, we, we started all of our uh, gospel presentations with, you know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You had to get people good and lost and all that. And what I realized is I, I knew I was lost. I, I knew I was messed up. I knew I was a sinful person, but I needed to, to know there was hope. And so... On the other side of the cross, the focus is our righteousness in Christ, that we really are new, that we're different, we're a new creation. And so the question is, okay, so I understand how I became sinful because I have a very distorted view of who God is. Mm -hmm. I don't see him as a loving father. I see him as a judge. I see him as an angry, vindictive judge at that. Right, so then I'm, I'm trying to see what I can get away with. I'm running from him. I'm hiding. Exactly. Fear, shame, it's guilt, a garden all, all over, the, yeah. the whole whole devastation of the fall again. But whenever you see God in his proper perspective, you get a lens of a loving God, a good God. I mean, you know, it's it really is the whole picture of the prodigal that uh, is painted that comes to his father, and his father embraces him. He mm-hmm. welcomes him. He, he loves him. He pleads for unity between the brothers and the, the whole picture and, and Jesus said, listen, I fully reflect and represent who the Father is like. And so if you want to know what the Father is like, it's, it's like me. And so on the right side of the cross, it's living a life that is Christ-oriented. It's, it's living a life by the Spirit of God. And there's a whole lot more we say on that. But I think just seeing the difference in, in the reason we title it living from the right side of the cross is kind of co- contrasting the yeah. two, you yeah, know. Yeah, as opposed to the left side of the cross. The left side of the cross, yeah, left behind. <laughs> left, left behind yeah, the yeah. side of the cross. Yeah. Um, so what is it in, in your mind, in your heart, what is it you hope that somebody picks up this book? Yeah. How, how, how do, you, do you hope, expect that it would impact their life? Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that uh, is important for me is that people learn to think for themselves and that they're... Um, I hope it provokes people to think through some things, to ask some questions. Uh, I think a lot of times um, we don't realize how important it is to repent and to realign with God and to continue. You know, I mean, 
the things that uh, God is teaching me today are, are I'm having to repent of some mm-hmm. of the things from the past that I just knew that I knew. Well, I knew, but again, it's progressive revelation. I knew at a first grade level, second grade level, a fifth grade level. And now I think God is accelerating things big time. And I, yeah. think, I think that's part of the message. Uh, in in the, <laughs> the one book that became three, uh, I had a choice to make. Uh, where, where do I start? I mean, I, I, I didn't really want to start where I started. I wanted to write a book about living from the right side of the cross. Yeah. And, um, you know, most of this book was highly influenced by our conversation, so you've had a huge part in shaping this book. But what I realized was that until people understood the why first, yeah. until they really understood who God is in us and who we are in Him, until, until they really got the identity part right, then all of the practical how-tos would still make, not make sense because you could live that way, uh, trying to keep those things from the wrong side of the cross. That's really good. Yeah. That's really exciting. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's switch gears kind of as we're, as we're wrapping up with some, uh, some rapid-fire right. questions. All right. When, when you were a little boy, five or six years old, what did you want to be when you grew up? Cowboy. Cowboy, all right. What, uh, what author outside of, uh, of the authors of the Bible has most impacted your life? Oh wow! That's, You're thinking. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. I would say um, Baxter Kruger. Baxter Kruger. All right. He's a theologian that nobody here probably has heard of or read. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Let's say that that the rapture has happened and, and you're left behind with uh, with Kirk Cameron. There you go. Yeah. And, and uh, because. Uh, you know those bumper stickers that say if if uh, raptures occurred, this car will be unmanned. Now there's there's a ton of cars right that yeah. are they're left behind. Yeah. Uh, what car do you pick? What car do I pick? Yeah. The one that's been left behind. I, you know. You know. You know. There, there's there's a, a little bit of assumption there that, uh, that this is gonna <laughs> gonna happen. That we're gonna be all be left behind here. Huh? Uh, yeah. I I think I'll let Kirk ride alone. You you let him ride alone. Yeah. So to shorten the question, yes. if you could have any car in the world, what car would you any drive? Any car. I, th- I think I would like to drive a Lamborghini. Nice. Yeah. Fast. Nice and fast. Nice and fast Italian. Yeah. All right. Um, what, uh, what are you dreaming of uh, riding on next? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, um, the, the two books that <laughs> were with the original tri- trilogy, I think I'm going to put them on hold for a little bit. Uh, the next project will be um, a kind of a Better Covenant discipleship book and kind of a companion, a prayer book, a kind of a prayers to pray, how to pray with a Better Covenant vocabulary from the book of Ephesians. So I'm, I'm working on that right now and really hope to field test that uh, through Sozo and uh, hope, hope to have that done by the first of the year. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Steve, this has been a pleasure sitting with you, uh, doing our, our first Sozo, uh, what Sozo Talks yeah. podcast, and uh, I'm really excited. Steve, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, um, is a senior leader here at Sozo, and, uh, and just a, a joy to be around has been vital in, in shaping our culture, not just uh, with his mind and teaching, but with his encouragement and passion for God. So I'm honored to, to get some time with you. Well, I'm honored, too. It's been good.